This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. According to History.com, quote, The Ottoman Empire was one of the mightiest and longest-lasting dynasties in world history. This Islamic-run superpower ruled large areas of the Middle East, Eastern Europe and North Africa for more than 600 years. The chief leader, known as the Sultan, was given absolute religious and political authority over his people. While Western Europeans generally viewed them as a threat, many historians regarded the Ottoman Empire as a source of great regional stability and security, as well as important achievements in the arts, science, religion and culture. End quote. Between 1878 and 1885, Eastern Rumelia was a province toward the south of modern-day Bulgaria. On 6th September 1886, following a revolution, they became a tributary state but were independent. When Bulgaria became independent in 1908, Eastern Rumelia unified with them. The 6th of September is now a public holiday known as Unification Day. This is Decoding Cults and I am your host Paul Z. You are listening to The Branch Davidians, Part 1. In our last episode, we looked at the start of Millerism and the creation of Seventh-day Adventism. In this episode, we will focus on a branch that split off from them, the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, also known as the Shepherd's Rod Seventh-day Adventists, or just the Rod, and how they became the Branch Davidians. I'm going to cover this group over quite a few episodes because there is tons of information on them and if you're like me, you also like the whole story. Victor Tasha Hautef was born on 2 March 1885 in Rykovo, Eastern Rumelia. He was baptized and raised into the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. At some point in his youth, he was said to have left the church following a disagreement with the church leaders. He worked in the mercantile trade until 1907, where, at the age of 22, he immigrated to the U.S. with his brothers. There is not a lot of information on his early days in the U.S., except for his own words in Timely Greetings, Volume 2, from 1948. In it, 
He explains that he eventually settled in Illinois and opened a hotel. He had his first encounter with Seventh-day Adventism in 1918 when he attended a tent meeting. In 1919, he fully turned back to religion and was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It appears that their stringent beliefs appealed to him. He eventually sold the hotel and, in his words, quote, accidentally got into the grocery business, end quote. Keeping this last statement in mind, I assume that he wasn't very happy about being a grocer because he would later sell the business at a loss. It was after this that he decided to move to California to be closer to a larger Seventh-day Adventist group. Once in California, he became quite ill. A fellow church member took him to the Glendale Sanatorium. Now, when I hear sanatorium, I think of mental illness. But back in the early 1900s, it was a place where people went for long-term care for illness, like tuberculosis treatment. This was before the discovery of antibiotics. Victor spent over a week in hospital, and the bull almost wiped out his entire savings. Over and above this, he still owed around $75 in tithes to the church. That works out to around $1,023 today, or about 15,700 rand. He landed a job at Maytag selling washing machines and vacuum cleaners. Maytag is still around today and is now owned by the Whirlpool Corporation. He did very well and earned a decent salary. Victor would go on to talk about different times where he would discuss the Saturday Sabbath with different colleagues and each time they rejected it, they would be fired or even die. Now, there is no proof of this happening, but I suspect that he would tell these tales to his future congregation to scare them into following the rules. He decided to start a side business by creating healthy sweets. I could not find any information of such a company, but according to him, it afforded him enough income to quit his job. Victor became a Sabbath school teacher and later became the assistant superintendent of the school, which at the time had around 200 students. It was also around this time that he started delving deeper into the Bible and the writings of Ellen G. White. If you remember, she was one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and had written many books about her visions. The more he studied, the more information he found that contradicted some of the teachings. He focused a lot on Isaiah in the Old Testament and Revelation 7 in the New Testament. The section in Isaiah that he deemed important was the promise of a new Jerusalem, punishment for those who remain sinful and a new earth. Revelation 7 focuses on the people who are marked as the servants of God. In verse 4 it states, quote, And I was told that the number of those who were marked with God's seal on their foreheads was 144,000. They were from the twelve tribes of Israel. End quote. Victor started incorporating his findings into his teachings, and his Sabbath school classes became longer but also more popular. He started to become concerned that the church was becoming more focused on worldly things and becoming lax in following their own rules. At first, he did not want to split off from the church but rather tried to get them to see his viewpoints. 
He was adamant that the 144,000 from Revelations was their congregation. Most of the church elders were not impressed by this, especially since the church at that point had over 300,000 followers. Victor wrote a book called The Shepherd's Rod, The 144,000, A Call for Reformation. He got the idea for the rod in the main title from Micah chapter 6 verse 9, quote, The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. End quote. In this book, he points out that, quote, The chief object of this publication is to bring about the reformation among God's people. End quote. He lays out his findings in seven sections and then summarizes some of the points later in the book. These include the importance of the 144,000 servants, the coming of the New Jerusalem, and the redeemed. He also wrote a partial list of 12 abominations in the church as he saw it. Some of these included the following, the fashion of the world, misuse of tithes, and lack of reverence in the house of God. He ends the book by writing, quote, Bearing in mind our duty to the world and the third angel's message, truly the burden on my heart for the children and young people is a heavy one. I appeal to every loyal Seventh-day Adventist to arise with prayer and fasting against these so-called pleasures of the age, to save our children while the devil is seeking to deceive even the very elect, end quote. He believed that he was a divine messenger and was selected to reveal the new spiritual truths. He handed his book out to many of the church elders, and it was not received well at all. One of the elders wrote to Victor about two weeks after receiving the book. This letter was not what he had expected. The letter rejected the findings in the manuscript, challenged how he applied certain symbols, and found it unsound. Although his message was rejected by the elders, he did have a group of followers within the denomination. In 1932, he published the Shepherd's Rod Volume 2, which focuses a lot more on the Book of Revelations and places emphasis on Passover. He even had an illustration in the book which laid out every minute in time preceding Passover. Some of the members who did not agree with his teachings became disgruntled and called for a hearing to be held to examine his teachings. In 1933, E.T. Wilson, who was a devout SDA member, publicly stated that he believed what Victor was teaching. He would go on to become Victor's vice president. On 18 January 1934, a formal hearing was held, overseen by 12 ministers from the church. The meeting didn't go well, and on 18 March 1934, the ministers provided their findings in writing. They unanimously agreed that the teachings were false, even going as far as calling it heresy, and Victor was excommunicated from the church. With his excommunication, Victor officially organized the Shepherd's Rod Seventh-day Adventists, also known as the Rod. Having no more access to church resources, he wrote a newsletter on 15 August 1934 called The Symbolic Code. In this publication, he asked members to help him find a rural setting from which they could operate. At first, one of Victor's followers, 
who happened to live across the road from the church, opened her house to him and he started teaching his classes there. He also still identified as a Seventh-day Adventist, or SDA. In April 1935, he purchased 189 acres of land along the Brazos River near Waco, Texas. His idea was to move to a place which was far enough away from other people that it would not interfere with their beliefs. The small group of those who believed in Victor moved there with him. Among these were Eric and Sophie Hermanson and their daughter Florence. Florence was born in 1919, which would have made her 16 at the time. She will become important later in the story. The Hermansons were instrumental in obtaining the land as they purchased the land and then sold it back to the group for a fraction of what it had cost. The group built a new headquarters on the property and named it the Mount Carmel Center. In the Bible, Mount Carmel is where Elijah challenged the false prophets to show the strength of their gods through prayer, and the show of miracles convinced the Israelites to worship God again. The shepherd's rod built schools, a sanitarium, a church, and a farming operation on the property. The main idea was for them to be as self-sufficient as possible and have as little as possible contact with the outside world. Victor also believed that physical labor was an important part of community life. Besides regular school subjects, children were also taught the Bible, the writings of Ellen G. White, and Victor's writings as well. They had also survived the Great Depression relatively unscathed because of their self-sufficiency. Congregants also started to refer to Victor as their Elijah. Victor was convinced that their stay at Mount Carmel would only be temporary as he thought that within the year, quote, the saved remnant would found a theocratic kingdom of David in Palestine, proclaim the true gospel to the world, and be transported into heaven upon the return of Christ, end quote. Of course, this never happened. So he returned his focus on building the community and getting his message out. During the late 1930s, Victor returned to Bulgaria to visit some of his family. While there, he also attempted to spread his message, but was run out of the country for his beliefs by the Bulgarian National Socialist Movement. He did, however, continue to travel and spread his message. One of his goals was to convert 144,000 people as per the prophecy in Revelation. In 1937, two major things happened. Firstly, in January, Victor, aged 52, married Florence Hermanson, 34 years his junior, at only 18 years old. Secondly, they named an executive council, which comprised of nine people, and they composed a constitution and bylaws for the General Association of Shepherd's Rod Seventh-day Adventists. Besides keeping many of the beliefs from Seventh-day Adventism, like vegetarianism and tithing, they also held some other major teachings. Some of these were that they needed to reform back to higher standards of devotion, that they were in the same league as the 144,000 from Revelation, and also that the coming of Christ was imminent. By 1940, the Mount Carmel Center had added around 63 residential homes, had fully functioning water and sewerage systems, had electricity and even telephones. 
They even had their own printing press, which was used to print and distribute Victor's writings all through the US. In 1942, they changed their name to Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, named after David from the Bible, and also they believed that the Davidic Kingdom of Israel would be restored. They also published their constitution and bylaws in a document named the Leviticus of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist. The book of Leviticus in the Bible consists of many rules and regulations as set out by God in the Old Testament for how people should worship and carry out religious ceremonies. These laws and bylaws brought even more structure to the organization. At the top was the executive council who were in essence the governing body. There were now only seven members, four officers, who comprised of Victor as the president, E.T. Wilson as vice president. Although the president held much of the power, the vice president basically ran all of the administrative duties within the church. Florence, Victor's wife, was the secretary, and her mother Sofa was the treasurer. There were also three non-officers, but it is unclear who these people were. They had two types of ministers, ordained ministers, who could teach, perform baptisms, weddings and funerals, and then licensed ministers, who could teach, but could not perform any ceremonies. Field secretaries were responsible for areas within territories. Bible workers would teach the Davidia message. Both Bible workers and ministers needed to go through the Davidic Levitical Institute, which was their training school. And lastly, there were the members. They were also classified into two groups. Accredited members were those who had received a certificate of fellowship, and non-accredited members supported the movement and its teachings, but had not yet applied for or had received a certificate. One of the big rules was that any member who had a spouse who did not wholly adopt their faith was to abandon that spouse immediately. Members were also to dress modestly. Women had to wear clothing that fully covered them and could not wear any makeup or jewellery. Victor also had everyone stop celebrating Christmas and Easter as he saw these as Roman holidays. Now although this still seems like a fairly benign group, let's look at some of the rules and overlay them with Steve Hassan's bite model. Firstly, they were isolated from the outside world. Their diet and dress were strictly watched. They were not allowed any information other than the teachings of the leader, even going so far as to build their own schools in which to teach their doctrine. Lastly, anyone who did not believe in their teachings were to be cut off, even if it was your own spouse. These fall neatly under behavioral and information control. Benjamin Lloyd Roden was born on 5 January 1902 in Oklahoma to a Jewish family. He studied to become a teacher and even taught for a short time. Later, he moved away from education and started to work on oil fields in Oklahoma. On the 2nd of February 1937, at the age of 35, he married Lois Irene Scott, who was 21 years old, and they had six children together, two daughters and four sons, one of which was George Roden. Lois was a Christian, and Ben converted from Judaism to Christianity at the time. The family became Seventh-day Adventists in 1940, and moved to Texas where Benjamin continued to work on the oil fields for a time. Later the family moved to Odessa, 
and Benjamin became head elder in his church. During the mid-1940s, they were exposed to the Shepherd's Rod movement and visited them at Mount Carmel. The teachings appealed to them, but when the SDA found out about this, they were excommunicated, which angered them as they had helped fund one of the church buildings. So they officially joined the Davidians in 1946. They will become important to the story a little bit later. In 1950, Victor decided to expand his teachings overseas. He traveled to countries where they had an already established Seventh-day Adventist church. It was easier to convert these kinds of followers. He gained a small but deeply committed international group. Between his local and international followers, the Davidians were said to be a hundred thousand strong, but there is no official record of this. In 1953, they launched what they called, quote, the hunting campaign, end quote. They were convinced that they were on the verge of the fulfillment of the prophecies and sold off some of their property to buy a bunch of brand new cars. They then set off on a door-to-door campaign to reach as many people as possible within the SDA. On 5 February 1955, Victor died at the age of 69. Although this was very unexpected by his followers, as they had believed that he would be there to lead them into the new age, he had been struggling with his health for over a decade. The natural successor to the leadership was E.T. Wilson, but Florence had other ideas. The day after her husband's death, Florence sent a letter to the Executive Council stating the following, quote, To the Executive Council, I am requesting by this letter that the Council convene for the purpose of considering and passing a resolution on the following requests made by V.T. Houtef before his death. 1. That, in the case of V.T. Houtef's death, which would automatically leave vacant the office of President, Mrs. Florence Houtef be appointed to full office of Vice President. 2. That someone be appointed to succeed Mrs. Florence Houtef as Secretary. 3. That T.O. Hermanson be appointed as a member of the Executive Council. 4. That the Council make a resolution to provide for the welfare of Mrs. Florence Houtef for as long as she lives. Sincerely yours, Mrs. Florence Houtef. End quote. The meeting was held at 1.30 that same afternoon. Wilson, who had fallen ill, was not able to attend the meeting. The Executive Council had decided that they would endorse points 1 and 3 and would defer the other two to the next evening at 8pm. Interestingly, O.T. Hermanson was Florence's brother and by endorsing point 1, she had effectively pushed Wilson out. At the next meeting, O.J. Conrad was selected as secretary, and they also agreed to provide Florence with whatever she needed for as long as she may live. Once Florence became vice president, she immediately upped her power by putting in place a rule that the vice president could veto any decision made by the council. She also put forward new codes that everyone was to follow. A few months after the death of Victor, Ben Roden claimed that he had received a message directly from God. This would become important later. He further claimed that he was to be the true leader of the Davidians. He brought this to the council, but they immediately rejected this. My suspicion is that Florence, having veto rules and being set up for life, 
would not easily want to hand over power to Ben. Shortly after this, Florence predicted that from November 1955, a 42-month period or 1,260-day period, as foretold in Revelation, would culminate not only in the Second Advent on 22 April 1959, but it would also bring forth the resurrection of Victor. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll notice that this is not a new thing. Two of the groups that we've covered before have used this timeline to their own ends. Florence had convinced the congregants that this prediction was completely in line with her husband's writings. She stated that in 1959 would be, quote, the year of the kingdom, end quote. She further stated that as a run-up to the establishment of God's kingdom in Jerusalem, there would be war in the Middle East and the Seventh-day Adventist church would be purified again. As we can see here, she is using a literal day which differs from William Miller's year-day period. Ben tried to refute this prediction. He even wrote letters to both the SDA and the Davidians around his view. In his opinion, the establishment of God's kingdom would only take place in 1960. All of his efforts fell on deaf ears. The Davidian community was convinced that her predictions were true. This was further emphasized when the nearby town of Waco started expanding to the point that it was encroaching on their property, almost like the outside world was wanting to take over. In 1957, Florence sold the remaining property that belonged to the Mount Carmel Center and purchased a cheaper but much bigger piece of land 13 miles or about 21 kilometers away from Waco. They named this property the new Mount Carmel Center. They set up structures, but as they were awaiting the inevitable end of days, they didn't put up very sturdy structures that would last. As the predicted date grew closer, Davidians outside of the new compound started selling off their homes, businesses, farms, and personal items that they thought they would no longer need. Congregants from all over the U.S., some even from Canada, totaling about 900, all went to Mount Carmel to await the imminent day. They all believed that they were part of the 144,000 servants marked for God. Excitement ran through the compound as the meeting started on the 18th of April. This auspicious date happened to fall on Passover that year. Passover is a Jewish holiday where they celebrate the Israelites leaving Egypt as documented in the book of Exodus. The Torah states that the Jews are to observe Passover for seven days, beginning on the 15th of the Jewish month Nisan, usually April. The first night always includes a special cedar, or ritual dinner. Plus, Traditional Jews outside of Israel don't work on either the first two or the last two days of the seventh-day period. Outside of Israel, Jews celebrate a second seder on the second night of Passover. The evening of the 22nd came and went without anything happening. Many of the congregants were understandably upset. They had sold everything and were now stuck with nothing. Loads of people left the movement, some even that very next day and splinter cells started to break off. Some of these groups continued to print and teach from Victor's writings. Another group even settled at the old site of Mount Carmel. Yet another was headed up by Ben Roden, but I'll get back to that a bit later. 
Florence tried her best to hold on to the few members that remained faithful to her. In December of 1960, in an attempt to gain more believers, she declared that the shepherd's rod needed to be given to all Protestant Christians and should not be only told to the Seventh-day Adventists. Florence eventually realized that her reign was over. She announced that her teachings had contained many errors, and on 1 March 1962, she officially resigned along with some other council members. They took $5,000 in cash with them, which equates to about $46,000 now or 698,000 rand in today's terms. They also tossed lawyers to sell off the property. Florence kind of faded into obscurity after this. The only thing we know about her life after Mount Carmel is at some point she married a gentleman called Carl Levi Eakin and that she passed away on 14 September 2008 at 89 years old. Let's go back a bit to April 1955. As you recall, Ben Roden had claimed that he had received a message from God that he was to be the next leader of the church. He claimed that God had come to him, had physically picked him up by his pajamas and told him to write a letter. When he finished writing, he explained to God that it was not his own words and that he couldn't sign it. He alleged that God had told him to sign it as, quote, the branch. Despite the larger Davidian and SDA community rebuffing his claims, he did manage to obtain a small group of followers. He left Mount Carmel with this group and established the Branch Davidians, so named because he claimed that they were the anointed branch as mentioned in Zechariah 3 verse 8. Quote, Listen then, Joshua, you who are the high priest, and listen you fellow priests of his, you are the sign of a good future. I will reveal my servant who is called the Branch. End quote. In 1958, Ben and Lewis went to Israel. The two set up a small commune there and even tried to convince their followers to relocate there, but this didn't happen, and they returned to the US in time to be at the 1959 gathering with Florence's prediction. In the aftermath of the unsuccessful prediction of Florence in 1959, Ben gained a few more followers for his church. He told them to get off the dead rod a reference to the shepherd's rod, and move on to the living branch, a reference to his new church. He did, however, stop spreading his message about the actual advent date being in 1960. My guess is he didn't want to look like a fool the same way Florence did. When Ben found out that the Davidians were selling the property, he tried to lay claim to it. This claim eventually ended up in court in 1962 and he got ownership of a portion of the property and named it Mount Carmel, and his group moved back there. At this time, he renamed the group the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, or GADSA, and created their own laws and bylaws like the Leviticus of the Rod. He would later go on to purchase back the entirety of the original property. One of his teachings was that God's judgment had now turned from the dead to the living on 20 October 1955, and that they needed to strive for a pure life in order to end up in the kingdom. Ben's philosophy was that Jesus would only come back once they had all reached a level of moral maturity. 
it is said that quite a bit of the changes that he made lent towards his Jewish background by getting his followers to observe some more of the Hebrew festivals. He also added a ritual which he called the daily. The followers were together every day at both 9am and 3pm where they would partake in Bible study and also listen to Ben's teachings. For the next few years, not a lot happened under Ben's leadership. The members of the group lived relatively pious but uneventful lives. Clive Doyle, an SDA and convert to Ben's teachings, would join the group all the way from Australia in 1966. He will become more involved later in the story. Another family that will become important are the Joneses. Perry Jones was a respected salesman from Waco, and he, his wife, and his children would park their caravan at the compound and spend entire summers there. Perry was a big recruiter for the group and rose up in the ranks, becoming a leader within the group. In 1970, Ben announced that he had received another spiritual vision. I could not find the specifics of this vision in my research, but he did proclaim that he himself was King David's successor. His followers also claimed that it was a sign for the beginning of God's rule on earth. A few years later, as Ben was getting on in years, he named his son George Roden as his second in command. He would then be primed to take over leadership once Ben was gone. In 1977, Lois Roden claimed that she had a vision. In her vision, she saw, quote, a silver angel shimmering in the night. It was a feminine presence of this angel, end quote. This led her to believe that the Holy Spirit was in fact female. This was revolutionary for the movement, but not for the time. The 1970s was a time where there was an upward trend within the feminist movement. It may also have gone over more easily as the group had already regarded Ellen G. White as a prophet. She also backed up her claims that some of the words used to describe the Holy Spirit in Hebrew were feminine words. She started exploring this further and incorporated it into her teachings. Ben had accepted this point of view and made Lois the co-leader of the movement. On 22 October 1978, at the age of 76, Ben Roden passed away. He was laid to rest in a mausoleum at Waco Memorial Park. One of Ben's last requests was that he wanted to be buried at the Mount of Olives in Israel, so Lois started arrangements for this as soon as she could, but it would be a long time before she could fulfill this promise. Both Lois and her son George laid claim that they were the next leader of the group. This was where things started to turn. In our next episode, We will look at the struggles for leadership and how a young man named Vernon Howell wormed his way into the group. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and if you order, tell them I sent you for a 5% discount. 
The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.